0: The scripture reading today is found in Mark chapter 11. It's on page 847 of your Pew Bible. If you want to look at it there? And it's going to be verses 1 to 25. Give you a chance to find it or you can look on the screen. Oh, please stand for the reading of God's word. Thank you. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back immediately. And they went and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is God's word.
1: Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, as we open your word this morning, our desire is to hear from you. So, Lord, we pray that you would be present with us, that your spirit would be here, that you would be speaking to each heart as you know the condition of every heart you know, the worries, the concerns, the questions we bring in with us. Lord, let your spirit speak to our heart from your word that we might see you more clearly and that in seeing you, we would be changed from glory into glory, Lord. We would be transformed into your image. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As most of you know, I grew up in Nebraska, which is about 1,500 miles from here, and uh, you know, there are several things that you will see in Nebraska that are not quite so common in New England, cows, for instance, or, you know, wide open prairie, um, you know, When I was growing up, I used to resent it when people told me there were no trees in Nebraska and I would always quickly correct them. There's some right there and there's some clear over there and and things like that. And then living in New England for just eight months when we went home our first time and walked out of the Omaha airport, it's like, it feels like a barren desert here. um, But, you know, being flat and treeless has its advantages as well, though. You will never see a sunset in New England, the way you see one in Nebraska. The the beauty and the expanse. Um, and there are other sites uh, that were common there. And one of the, the sites that always fascinated me growing up uh, were the old broken-down barns that dotted the countryside at each of the farmsteads. Oftentimes you still had the old, uh, old broken-down barn. And, and it was one of my favorite things to see on road trips and, and literally, they're the kind where you could actually see through them because they're missing so many slats. And they're usually leaning about 10 degrees to one side with a big old bow in the, in the roof and such. Uh, there's a kind of nostalgic beauty to them. Uh, now, as far as farming goes, uh, there was nothing functional about them whatsoever. Uh, you could no longer use them for what they were initially made for. Uh, they used to be the heart of the operation. That's where you stored the equipment. That's where you, you kept your livestock and your feed and everything. Now, they're really nothing more than a monument to the way that things used to be back then. Uh, in fact, if you tried to use them for farming, uh, they're actually quite dangerous. Uh, if, if you store your tractor and stuff in there, they can't keep the rain out, so, so you risk ruining your equipment, and and if you store your livestock or you spend much time in there yourself, you're at risk of of injury because a lot of these things could really collapse at any moment, and some of them do. And, And so, you know, they look pretty from the road, but if it's a barn that you need, these buildings really should be condemned. When Jesus entered Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover week to the praise and fanfare of the crowds, Mark tells us that he made a beeline for the temple. And when he stood in the temple courtyard that night and he looked around at everything, sizing it all up, what he saw was a building no longer useful for what it was made to do. A structure that was at best a monument to the way things used to be, but had already become a danger to those who would try to approach God through it and its religious system. It had become as useless as a barren tree. It needed to be condemned. As a church, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Since we're going to come to Matthew's account of what happened on Palm Sunday in, in a few months... I wanted to take a look at the Gospel of Mark this morning and see how does Mark help us understand the significance of this day and what Jesus came to do. And one of the things that that Mark puts an incredible amount of emphasis on is Jesus' interaction with the temple. So it's where he goes to immediately when he gets there in verse 11. He returns to it the next day in verse 15, and then the day after that, in verse 27, he goes back to the temple. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 35, tells us he's teaching in the temple that week. And then at the beginning of chapter 13, he foretells that this temple is going to be destroyed. Even the song that the crowds sing to him during his triumphal entry is about Israel's king going up to God's temple. Now, we often recognize the royal imagery of that scene uh, with Jesus, who, who's spent most of his time in ministry uh, north of Jerusalem around the Sea of Galilee. He's now come to Jerusalem to claim his throne as Israel's king, and, and he receives a royal welcome into the city. So he he comes riding on a donkey, just as Zechariah, it sounds kind of a funny way to enter a city as a royal, but but Zechariah 9, verse 9, tells us that God's king would come that way, humble, riding on a donkey. Jesus does that, and, and people are throwing their coats in the road before him and palm branches and tree branches before him. But the song that the crowds are actually singing, which comes from Psalm 118, Hosanna, It's not only a cry for salvation to God, which is what Hosanna means. It means save us. It was a song that celebrates the salvation God has worked for his king, who is now returning to Jerusalem victoriously and going up to the temple to worship God. That's what's happening in that song. So the king says as he approaches the city in Psalm 118 verse 19, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. So God has delivered his king and the king is coming to Jerusalem now. And then in verses 25 to 26, the crowd sing, save us, we pray, O Lord. And, and if you put that word for "save us," the Hebrew word for "save us," into Greek it comes out something like Hosanna. And so uh, save us, O Lord, we pray. O Lord, we pray, give success. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, but then notice where the blessing they're offering comes from, and where the king is actually going to. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That is the temple. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind up the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. And that altar, again, is at the temple. So, so God's king is returning victorious to Jerusalem to give praise to the Lord at the Lord's temple. That's what's happening in Psalm 118. That's the song that the crowd is singing to Jesus. But when Jesus enters the temple courtyard, he does not find the festal sacrifice bound and piled up to the horns of the altar. And so the altar was, you know, a square type table thing. It had each corner was raised to kind of keep the sacrifice in place. He didn't find a sacrifice piled up to the top of the horns of the altar. Instead, what he found when he walked into the temple was a polluted operation run by corrupt leadership. He found a broken down barn that was no longer good for what it was made for. But to understand what's wrong with the temple as Jesus finds it and why that's such a big deal, we need to understand a little bit more about what the temple was actually for. What was the purpose of God giving Israel a temple? And of course, to do that, we have to look at a bit of the Old Testament. So the temple, if we look at the Old Testament, the temple was all about God's presence with his people, God's presence with his people. Now, of course, you know, God is what we call omnipresent, which means he is everywhere at the same time. No building on earth and not even the heavens themselves can contain God and his presence. And yet throughout the story of Scripture, we see God's intention to dwell with his people in a special way. He wants to dwell with them so that he can rule over them as his king, as their king, and then relate to them as their God and their father, such that they might know him and serve him and worship him as his children. So so God wants to dwell with his people The temple is all about God's presence. And God's presence is all about his rule and relationship with him and worship of him. That's what the temple was about. And God's presence is holy. It's set apart from everything else. It's different from every other space. It's filled with God's glory in a tangible way. It's a glory they could actually see in the cloud and the fire and such. The temple was in many ways kind of the overlap and intersection between heaven and earth, between God's space and our space. Uh, so it's where you went on earth to meet with the God who is in heaven. You went to the temple. And therefore nothing unclean was allowed into it because to go into it was to go into the very presence of God. And his presence is too holy. So nothing unclean or sinful can come into his presence, the only way that sinful people were allowed to draw near to God was on the basis of a sacrifice being made for their atonement, which was offered by a priest. And and even the high priest was the only one who could go into the innermost part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And then he could only go once a year and not without a blood sacrifice for his own sins and for the sins of the people. So so the temple was simultaneously a witness to God's majesty and to God's mercy at the same time. It was too holy for any sinner to draw near without being consumed by his wrath. And yet, on the basis of the sacrifices made for them, that's exactly what repentant sinners were invited to do, to draw near to God in his presence even repentant sinners from foreign nations. If they would join themselves to the Lord and walk in faithfulness to Israel's covenant. Think of Isaiah 56, verses 6 through 7. It says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, those who... Uh, Submit to the covenant God gave Israel. These I will bring to my holy mountain. I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So the temple was uniquely for Israel. But even those outside of Israel, should they uh, align themselves with Israel's God and Israel's covenant in the Old Testament, were even invited to come near. So the temple was a special place in Israel's life and worship. Uh, It represented a special privilege of actually knowing God and being able to approach him and have an audience with the living God of the universe. Uh, Now that's something, to be honest, we often take for granted today when we think about gathering together in the presence of God. Um and we're not unloading our bulls in the parking lot or hauling our, our sheep and our goats up the stairs or or bringing our, our doves or our pigeons and those things. And, and so it's easy to forget the price it costs to be able to, <clears throat> excuse me, enter God's presence. And of course, the reason is because that price has already been paid in full by Christ. But it's easy to lose our awe at the specialness of having an audience with God, of being In God's presence with his people. Now the location of God's special presence. It was not always attached to a certain building. Throughout the Old Testament story. In fact the first temple we could say. Was the Garden of Eden in Genesis. It was there in that garden. Where the God of heaven. Walked with humanity on earth that overlapping, intersecting thing that's hard to put your, your mind around. And so, you know, when when they therefore then sinned, when they rebelled against God and his rule, they were therefore banished from the garden and kicked out from it because they were sent away from the presence of God. Their relationship with him was severed. Yet despite Israel's sin, God was still intent on dwelling with his people, redeeming them and in order to dwell with them, and restoring his rule and his relationship, which meant God had to restore his presence among Israel, even despite their sin. And so at each turn in Israel's story, we see, as God's redemption unfolds, we see God's presence with his people showing up in different ways. Think of uh, when Moses is called to the burning bush on Mount Sinai. What does he have to do? He has to take off his shoes because he's standing on holy ground. God's presence dwells here in a special way. Or you think of later in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai, the thunder, the clouds, the presence of God on that mountain. And then later the tabernacle that Israel's instructed to to build, this tent of meeting. And, and when it's completed, Exodus 40 tells us that the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's presence was there in a special way. The same thing happens when Solomon eventually builds the temple building itself in Jerusalem. And when that temple is dedicated in 1 Kings 8, again, it tells us the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So so the temple becomes this Uh, signal to Israel of God's presence and therefore their security, their peace, their strength, their significance, all of it becomes attached and associated with this building. This is where God dwells. This is where God invites us to come meet with him at the temple. And so listen to how Psalm 122 describes the joy of going up to Jerusalem to meet with God at his temple. It says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. So, so you read that. There's no drudgery. In that, you know, this wasn't about going through the motions of worship. We got to go to Jerusalem again and going up to the temple and so on. No, no, there was so much joy for them. It was like coming home to go to the temple in Jerusalem was like coming home. This is where they belong, their true home in the presence of God. It was about the incredible privilege of knowing God and being known by him, of having an audience with him, entering into his his presence, delighting in him with joyful submission and heartfelt worship. That's what God's presence was all about. And yet, as the story continues, after a time, Israel began to presume upon God's presence and favor. They began to think, well, As long as we have that building, God must be happy with us. Uh, Even if we're not walking with him in the ways of his covenant. Even if we are walking in idolatry and disobedience, we can always just go to the temple, do the sacrifice thing, and and clean the slate, uh, and so on. They lost a sense of God's holiness and awe in their presence. And so several hundred years after the temple was completed, God sent a prophet named Jeremiah to warn his people against taking God's presence and favor for granted. And not realizing that God and his presence is a consuming fire. In Jeremiah 7, 4, he says, Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You know, as long as we've got this building, we're okay. Jeremiah continues in verse nine. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name? And say we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. God's people presumed upon his presence and his grace. And they turned against his word. The temple That was supposed to be this meeting place with God. Was supposed to represent his presence. And his rule was no longer good for what it was intended for. It was at best a monument to how things used to be. But for most in Jeremiah's day, it was dangerous. It was deadly. Because they came in thinking they were fine. When they were really deserving of God's judgment for their unfaithfulness to the covenant. And judge them, God did. He removed his special presence from his people. He he kicked them out of his special city, Jerusalem. Ezekiel was another prophet around the same time as Jeremiah. To whom God gave one of the saddest visions in all of the Old Testament. A vision of the glory of the Lord. So that glory that filled the tabernacle and the temple when it was finished. A vision of that glory abandoning the temple and leaving the city. Ezekiel 11.23 says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east of the city. He's watching it go away. And that mountain on the east of the city was the mount." was the Mount of Olives. Shortly thereafter, the building itself is destroyed. You can read about that in 2 Kings 25. And so it it was as if the Garden of Eden was happening all over again. God's people turning with whom God dwelled turning against him and his rule and therefore being shut out from his special presence. But, as with Adam... In his sin, so with Jerusalem, with Judea and Israel in their sin. God remained intent on redeeming his people and dwelling with them. The story doesn't end. He wants to restore his rule and his relationship, which means he needs to restore his presence with them. He even gave Ezekiel a vision of his glory returning to the temple one day. Later in Ezekiel 43... Ezekiel says, then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east and the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east and the spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. God was not done with his people. He would dwell with them again and fill them with his glory. And when Israel was allowed to return from their captivity in Babylon, uh, after Babylon was, was conquered by Persia, uh, Cyrus, the Persian king, when he sends them back to their land, he actually sends them with a decree saying, go build a house for the Lord and build it on my dime. Isn't that incredible? And they did though those who remembered the majesty of the first temple wept when they saw the mediocrity of its replacement. And and even though God promised to fill this house with his glory in places like Haggai chapter 2, unlike the the tabernacle and unlike the temple in Jerusalem, we never actually see that happen in the story. There's never this dedication when the Spirit of God comes and the, and the glory fills the temple like we saw in the other buildings. And so there's a sense in which Ezekiel's version, Ezekiel's vision of the glory returning has yet to occur at the end of the Old Testament. And then one day, a Son of God, the one whom Colossians tells us is the fullness of deity in bodily form, the one who is the word who became flesh and tabernacled among us, whose glory we have seen, John 1.14, that's all temple language. This Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives, which is the same mountain Ezekiel saw the glory depart via, And he enters into the city and he goes straight to the temple. God's presence is returning to his temple. But not to restore it, surprisingly. To condemn it and then to replace it with himself. Mark tells us that on the night when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem after surveying the temple. He actually you know, goes back to Bethany with his disciples because it was too late. And on his way back into Jerusalem, into the temple the next day, we have this curious story of Jesus cursing a fig tree. So look with me at Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 14. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. Now, of all of Jesus's miracles, this is the one he gets the most flack from often. He comes off as a bit grouchy and mean spirited, you know. What did the poor tree do to deserve to be cursed like that? It wasn't even fig season. Although, you know, one could perhaps expect to find unripe figs during that time of year. But notice how on his way then from the temple later in the chapter, he and his disciples, as they're leaving Jerusalem, they walk by that very same tree. Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, when in the Gospel of Mark, you find an event that's kind of bookended or sandwiched by two other related stories. The bread often helps you interpret the significance of the meat in between, if you will. And so Jesus curses a fig tree for not doing what it's supposed to do bearing fruit and the fig tree as a result withers and dies and so it shouldn't surprise us if uh, if in between those two stories those two events we find jesus doing the same thing to the temple as he did to the tree cursing it for not doing what it was supposed to do such that it now withers and is dissolved and that's precisely what we find in between the two fig tree stories what's often called the cleansing of the temple the curse of the fig tree is a sign of judgment against god's temple for its fruitless worship so look at mark 11:15 through 17 with me and they came to jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. So, so Jesus came to the temple looking for fruit. Looking for God's people to be cherishing God's presence to be obeying his rule, worshiping him in genuine relationship. But instead, Jesus found a barren tree. What should have felt like coming home for Jesus, going up to the temple, felt instead like driving by your childhood home one day and seeing the windows all broken out and the door hanging on the hinge and a tree growing in the living room. It's a ruin of what it was supposed to be. So instead of finding in Isaiah's words a house of prayer for all nations, Jesus saw people exploiting and marginalizing the outsiders. He saw people taking God's command that Israel should go up to the temple and worship and using that as a means of financial gain. We've got a market here. Turning it into into selfish gain. He saw people exploiting the poor. So those who bought pigeons and doves were those who couldn't afford to bring a goat or a lamb, according to the Old Testament. That was, that was a concession for the poor people. And here you have people sitting there saying, no, that pigeon's not good enough. You've got to buy this one. Taking advantage of the poor. Merchants shutting the door of God's presence in the face of God's people. He found people going through the motions while disregarding God's covenant. He found a structure that was at best a monument, but at worst and foremost was actually a death trap. Rebels presuming upon God's presence and favor without realizing that they were about to be burned by his holy judgment. He found the same thing that Jeremiah found, that God's temple had become a den of robbers. And so, Jesus drove out the customers. He overturned the tables. He kicked the seats out from under the people selling pigeons. He brought the entire temple operation to a halt, if only for a few minutes, but long enough to make his point that this building is no longer your access point to God. I am. That's the point he was making. God still wants to redeem his people and dwell with them. He still wants to rule them and relate to them as a father relates to his children. He wants men and women, young and old, from all nations to come to him and to know him, to to have an audience with him, to enter into his presence, to worship him and delight in him and find satisfaction and joy in him. He wants to answer the cries of salvation that the crowds shouted that day, Hosanna, save us. But that will no longer happen through this building. It will happen through Jesus. He himself is the replacement of the temple. He himself is the special presence of God on earth. And when you think about it, what was the temple for? It was the It's where you went on earth to meet with the God in heaven. Well, if the God of heaven has come down and is standing right in front of you talking to you, you don't need that building, do you? You're looking at him. It's through Jesus that both Jews and Gentiles now have access to God. So if you want to know and worship God, it's no longer about going to a building. It's about trusting in a person. It's about trusting in a person. It's about faith in the power and plan of God through Jesus. And that's what he tells his disciples in Mark eleven twenty two. Have faith in God. I say to you that whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, as one author explains, this promise is not just a general comment about the power of prayer to do extraordinary things, though it is that. And, and God accomplishes extraordinary things through prayer. But saying to, quote, this mountain, that it should be lifted up and thrown into the sea when you're standing right next to the temple mountain, was bound to be taken as another coded warning about what would happen to the temple as God's judgment fell on his rebellious people. It's a common metaphor from the Old Testament as well. But Jesus calls his followers to have faith. Faith that through Jesus, God now hears your prayers. Faith that through Jesus, there is now forgiveness of sins. Those are things that formerly were associated with the temple. Now Jesus is saying they're associated with him. Eleven, twenty-four, 24 and 25. Therefore, I tell you, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And so if you want God to hear your prayers, if you want to be forgiven of your sins, it's no longer about going to a building. It's about going to Jesus. You must come to God through Jesus. And again, that's not about going through the motions. It's not about pretending or performing. Trusting in Jesus and abiding in him is like coming Home. The home you were meant for. The one that we were made for, where we really, truly belong. It's about this incredible privilege of knowing God, of being known by God, of, of, again, of having an audience with the one true God of the universe. When I pray, he actually hears and responds. Uh, Of Entering his presence with his people, observing him and delighting in him in joyful submission, in heartfelt worship. It's about security and peace and strength and significance that can come only from him. And it's in abiding in that relationship with Jesus that we actually then bear fruit to God's glory, as John 15 tells us. Because that's what the temple was about, right? Displaying the glory of God. How do we do that? We abide with Jesus, in God's presence through Christ, such that we obey and bear fruit to his glory. Jesus is the new temple. And just as he cursed the, the, the figless fig tree, the fruitless fig tree, so he condemns the temple that he might replace it with himself. And just as his disciples heard him say that curse to the fig tree in verse 14, the temple leaders also hear what Jesus is doing in the temple in verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So the tragic irony is that as Jesus is destroying the old temple, the religious leaders are looking for a way to destroy the true one, Jesus. And in fact, that's actually what it will take for him to replace the old one. Not only the destruction of that building which he foretells, but the destruction of his own body. To reclaim the temple for God, it's going to take a sacrifice. It's going to take the true Passover lamb. Not not the blood of bulls and goats and such of Israel's worship system, but the true Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so that's where this story is going. It doesn't end with the triumphal entry. It's pointing toward Good Friday and the crucifixion. And yet, it's through the destruction of this new temple, or the true temple, that the new one is actually established. As Jesus says to the temple leaders in John chapter 2, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And so Good Friday gives way to Easter Sunday to the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And when Jesus rises from the dead and he eventually then ascends to heaven to take his place at his father's side, which we're going to see next week, he sends his spirit such that all who believe in Christ now become the temple of God on earth today. It's a mind-blowing picture, but listen to how Ephesians 2 describes the people of God who belong to Jesus. It says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows Into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So when the Spirit fills us with Jesus, He makes us God's temple. A display of His glory for the world to see. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, he he describes the church as the fullness of him who fills all in all. Again, that's temple language, fullness, being filled and so on with God's glory. To know Jesus and be filled with his spirit is to be in God's presence. It's to come home. It's to abide with him and walk with him and to therefore bear fruit for him to the glory of God. May we never presume on God's presence and favor, thinking that, that sin and disobedience doesn't really matter. May we never become bored by the fact that when we gather, God is present with us by his Spirit. May we never become bored to that incredible reality. And may we never forget that knowing God Following God, worshiping God is not about going to a certain place or going through certain religious rituals. It's about knowing His Son Jesus and abiding in Him. He is the King who replaces the temple. Let's pray and worship Him. Lord God, we confess that we are so often unimpressed by your presence. We take it for granted. We neglect the incredible privilege it is. We neglect the fact that were we left to ourselves, your presence would consume us in wrath. We praise you that Jesus is the Passover lamb who takes away our sin, that we might enter your presence. We praise you That through him, we belong to you and become your temple. That your spirit dwells within us and among us. Lord, may that overwhelm us. And may that change the way we pray to you. May that change the way we worship you. May we be mindful that you are with us. When we are tempted to walk in a way that is not holy, would you remind us that we we are present You are present right there with us, even in that decision, God. May we be strengthened by your presence, comforted by your presence. And may we fix on your glory and your worthiness, God, because that is what your presence is about, that we might delight in and know you and and give you the glory you alone deserve. So, Lord, we ask it in the name of your son, Jesus, Amen.